anyone can get overly invested in their hobbies or relationships. Think of the last time you said something like, I'm obsessed with this new ice cream flavor, or I can't stop obsessing over this TV show. But we don't mean we're literally obsessed. In psychological terms, an obsession is irrational and uncontrollable. It causes anxiety and distress. It can drive you to compulsive, even dangerous behavior. It can grab hold of you completely until it feels like there's no you left. And the deeper you're drawn down the rabbit hole, the harder it is to get out. This is the story of New Zealand's most sensational crime, one that has everything to do with obsession. It's known as the Parker Hume murder. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm taking you on a world tour of 15 notorious crimes from 15 different countries. This week, I'm stopping over in New Zealand. In the summer of 1954, two teenagers named Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker were embroiled in a murder trial so wild, a local paper described it as, quote, one of the most famous trials in the annals of British justice. Juliet and Pauline seemed like nice, ordinary girls who would never commit a violent crime. But they claimed they did it for one simple reason, to be together. I have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It's about 3.30 p.m. on June 22, 1954. Agnes Ritchie is working at an ice cream stand near Christchurch, New Zealand. Even though June is the dead of winter in the Southern Hemisphere, it's a warm, sunny day and business is booming. The ice cream shop isn't too far from the entrance to a huge wilderness preserve called Victoria Park. Agnes spots a lot of day hikers passing by on their way to the trailheads. Nothing out of the ordinary until these two girls come running up to the shop's window. They're both about 15 or 16 years old, and they seem out of breath, like they sprinted to get over here. And they're both covered in blood. The teens are in such a panic, they can't bring themselves to say exactly what happened. They just demand that somebody call an ambulance. Agnes does exactly that. Then she sits with the girls and tries to calm them down. Eventually, they say their names are Juliet and Pauline. Apparently, the two girls and Pauline's mother, Nora, all went to Victoria Park that day for a hike. According to the girls, it started out well until they reached a remote part of the forest. Nora slipped on a rocky part of the path, fell, and hit her head. Pauline and Juliet say that they could tell right away that Nora was badly injured. They tried to lift her so they could carry her back to town to get help, but Nora was too heavy. They dropped her and she knocked her head on the rocks a second time. 
The girls were worried that their misguided rescue attempt might have hurt Nora even worse. Like, Pauline genuinely thought that she had killed her own mother. So they decide the best next step was to leave Nora there and run back for help, which is how they ended up at Agnes's shop. The ambulance still hadn't arrived by the time they finished their story. Agnes knows someone needs to go check on Nora, but she doesn't want to leave the girls alone. So she fetches her husband, Kenneth, and he runs off into the woods while Agnes stays with Juliet and Pauline. It's clear the girls are traumatized. At one point, Juliet says that she thinks she must be dreaming. Any minute now, she's going to wake up and Nora will be fine and they can just forget this ever happened. As for Pauline, she can't let go of the idea that her mother is dead and gone forever. And when Agnes suggests that maybe Nora's injuries aren't that bad, Pauline just blankly stares back at her, like that idea is ridiculous. It's clear there's not much more Agnes can do to help the girls feel better, so she calls Juliet's father to pick them up. While she waits for him to arrive, she takes the girls into the kitchen to wash up, brews a fresh pot of tea, and makes small talk with them about their school and other safe topics. At one point, she leaves the girls alone in the bathroom. And as she walks away, she hears something she never expected from two shell-shocked, grieving teenagers. Laughter. Meanwhile, Kenneth has been scouring a quarter mile of rough trails looking for Nora. He finally spots her lying on the ground just off the path, and he only needs a quick glance at her injuries to realize she is already dead. Her head is totally crushed. Blood is everywhere. And just from looking at the scene, Kenneth isn't convinced that she actually fell. It's not clear how she could have hit her head so badly in an ordinary stumble, especially because there aren't any rocks on the ground near her body. But Kenneth does find a brick nearby, and it's coated in blood. When the paramedics finally arrive, they notice even more details that don't add up. Nora has marks on her neck suggesting that someone held her down. And she doesn't have one or even two head injuries, like you'd expect if she fell. Nora's body has 45 separate wounds. And most damning, her fingertips are all torn, which implies she fought for her life in her final moments. The police also find a bloody sock not too far from the brick. They figure someone put the brick inside the sock and swung it around like a mace to beat Nora to death. At this point, you're probably thinking there are two obvious suspects, Juliet and Pauline. But the police aren't sure that both of the girls are guilty. I mean, it's possible one of them killed Nora and then lied to the other about what happened. And honestly, neither of them look like a strong suspect. Matricide is an incredibly rare crime. And when it does happen, the culprit is usually a son. It's practically unheard of for a daughter like Pauline to take her own mother's life. That leaves Juliet. But it's also hard to come up with a motive for why a 15-year-old girl would kill her friend's mother. Without any hard evidence to go on, all the police have are the two girls' statements. So that night, they go to Juliet and Pauline's houses to question them separately. And sure enough, once they're apart from one another, Juliet's stories change. 
Juliet now insists that she doesn't know how her friend's mother hit her head because she wasn't even there when it happened. She claims that she wandered off the trail to look for pretty stones when she heard this horrible shout. She ran back to the trail to find Nora already bloody and dead. Juliet claims that Pauline told her it was an accident and she doesn't have any reason to believe otherwise. But when they bring this back to Pauline, she sticks to the original story. She agrees that, okay, yeah, Juliet was a little ways ahead, but only about six feet. Juliet was still right there when Nora fell. A detective asks Pauline about the bloody sock they found, and without missing a beat, she says it's stained because she used it to try and mop the blood off Nora's face. Which is hard for investigators to believe because Nora's body isn't missing a sock, and neither were Juliet or Pauline when they showed up at Agnes's ice cream shop. Pauline tries to explain that she likes to carry a spare pair with her, but the police aren't buying it. Finally, they tell Pauline that they know the story about Nora slipping and falling is a lie. In fact, they have a theory of their own. Pauline planned to kill her mother in advance. She brought the sock and the brick with her to use as a weapon. When Juliet wandered off, Pauline seized her chance to attack. Then, when Juliet came back, Pauline lied to her about what happened, making her friend an unwitting accomplice. The police keep using this tactic, and they don't let up until Pauline confesses. She finally admits their whole theory is correct. She was alone with her mother when she killed her. Then she lied to Juliet about what happened. This is exactly what the investigators need to hear. They arrest Pauline, but that night, as she's in her jail cell, they notice that Pauline is acting strange, or rather, strangely normal. She doesn't seem that bothered by the homicide or her incarceration. She writes a diary entry where she actually jokes about her mother's death. Instead of writing the word murder, she calls it moiter, kind of like how a character in a mob movie might talk. And after she writes all of this down, she literally lets police read the journal. Like, she's not even trying to pretend she feels remorse. Whatever's going on in her head, the police basically figure, well, at least we know we have our killer. And the next morning, they go back to Juliet's house to clarify some details from her earlier statement. But they're probably not expecting any more big breaks. Except... As soon as they arrive, Juliet announces that she can't bear the thought of Pauline being all alone in jail, which is why she wants to confess, too. She and Pauline committed the murder together. Coming up, I'll explore what makes two ordinary girls into killers. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hakeman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath, from murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, 
The construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. Growing up in England, Juliet Hume probably wondered if she'd even survive to her teen years. She spent most of her childhood in and out of hospitals thanks to chronic bouts of pneumonia, bronchitis, and other respiratory illnesses. Juliet's doctors don't have any treatments to make her better, but they tell her parents they could try moving somewhere warmer to see if the climate might improve her health. So the Hume family moves from England to Barbados to the Bahamas before finally setting down in New Zealand, right around Juliet's 10th birthday. Juliet's health still isn't great, but she and her parents are feeling optimistic that things are headed for the better. It probably helps that Juliet makes a new friend at school, another girl close to her own age named Pauline Parker. Pauline also has chronic health problems. When she was five years old, she had a serious bone infection and needed surgery. After her recovery, her doctors told her not to do any physical activity, which means she wasn't allowed to play with other children. Even though that was years ago, Pauline's still a bit of a loner. On top of that, she grew up poor. And when she meets this wealthy, proper British girl named Juliet, Pauline is immediately taken in by Juliet's glamour. Pauline and Juliet bond over their shared experiences with illness and loneliness, and they become close, like really close. At age 15, Juliet gets sick again, this time with tuberculosis. During her three months in the hospital, she writes letters to Pauline, and the girls realize they both love writing stories. Soon, they're exchanging fiction. They come up with this elaborate epic featuring royal characters. It's full of betrayals and rebellions and romantic intrigue. Eventually, they start writing to each other in character. Juliet sends letters pretending to be a prince named Charles or his mistress, Deborah. Pauline writes as a knight named Lancelot and a villainous heiress named Marioli. In some of their letters, the characters talk frankly about killing their enemies to get what they want. And sure, this is all fiction, but once Juliet gets out of the hospital, the lines between reality and their fantasy world begin to blur. Pauline sleeps over at Juliet's house almost every night. They eat together, they bathe together, they talk about how they're going to move to the United States together and become famous novelists. They even invent their own religion. They pick out their favorite celebrities and canonize them as saints that they claim to worship. Pauline is at the Hume's house so often, she starts pretending that she and Juliet are sisters. Even Juliet's mom plays along with the fantasy. But the girls are getting so close, it's starting to raise some red flags. Sooner or later, both girls' parents suspect that their daughters are lesbians. Now, Juliet and Pauline insist that there's nothing sexual or romantic about their relationship, 
But it's hard to take them at face value, especially when you look at Pauline's diary entries. On June 11, 1954, she writes, We acted out how each saint would make love in bed. We felt very satisfied. Two days later, they apparently have sex while impersonating their saints again. Pauline describes the night as wonderful, heavenly, beautiful. We have now learned the peace of the thing called bliss, the joy of the thing called sin. Whatever's really going on, the girl's parents start reaching out for advice. And this being the 1950s when homosexuality, an outdated term, is considered a mental illness, the advice they get is not great. The headmistress of Juliet and Pauline's school tells the parents they need to intervene immediately and separate the girls for the sake of their mental health. But then the parents see a psychiatrist who says, don't worry, lesbianism is just a phase and Juliet and Pauline will grow out of it once they meet the right boys. But it soon becomes clear that what Juliet and Pauline have isn't just a young romance or a phase. It's crossing the line into obsession. They actually start believing that they share a telepathic link. One time, Juliet calls Pauline to talk about her day, and Pauline insists that she already knows everything that happened because of their supernatural bond. By 1954, the girls have been basically connected at the hip for a year now. They feel like nothing will separate them. They're practically family. Then, in mid-June, Juliet and Pauline get the worst news of their young lives. Juliet's parents are getting a divorce. They haven't worked out the details yet, but her father has already resigned from his job, and he's looking for a new position in England, or Italy, or South Africa, maybe the United States, practically everywhere other than Christchurch, New Zealand. Juliet might never see Pauline again. In fact, that seems to be the goal. They don't come out and say it, but Juliet's dad isn't just leaving New Zealand for a fresh start. He also wants to keep the girls apart. But Juliet and Pauline aren't going to accept that this is the end. They agree they'll do anything to stay together, whatever it takes. They figure that before Juliet's family moves, they can trick her parents into unofficially adopting Pauline. I mean, Pauline already sleeps over all the time, so it seems natural. They just need the right tragedy to tug at their heartstrings. So the girls decide to get Pauline's mother, Nora, out of the picture. They figure Pauline's father probably won't feel up to raising her on his own, and even if he wants to, he might not be able to afford it. And while he's grieving, Pauline and Juliet can persuade everyone to let Pauline stay with the Humes, at least for the time being. The girls know that Juliet's parents want to leave Christchurch by July 3rd, which is in two weeks, so they don't have much time. They'll have to act fast. On the evening of June 21st, Pauline invites her mother Nora to go on a picnic the next day with her and Juliet. And the next morning, Juliet arrives at Pauline's house with a brick in her bag. Together, they sneak into a bedroom where they wrap the brick in a sock. Then Pauline stashes the homemade weapon in her purse. They head to the park, have tea and cakes at a shop near the trailhead, and begin the hike. All the while, Juliet and Pauline are acting calm and sweet and happy, like there's no indication that anything's wrong. 
Once they're about a quarter mile down the trail, Juliet walks a little ahead of the group and drops a pretty pink rock on the ground. She yells for Nora to come over and look at the stone. And while Nora is distracted, Pauline pulls the brick and sock out of her bag. She hits her mother in the back of the head, but she doesn't die right away. I mean, she is very badly hurt, but she's still breathing. And even though Pauline has already crossed a line, she's suddenly having second thoughts about going through with this. So Juliet jumps in. She grabs Nora by the throat and holds her down while Pauline hits her with the brick again and again and again. The whole thing is just chilling. And Juliet and Pauline have even worked out their cover story. They'll just pretend that Nora fell. In their heads, they figure the odds are pretty good the police will accept this without investigating too much. If Nora only had one or two head wounds as they'd planned. But by this point, Pauline's beaten her mother so badly, it would only take one look at her body to realize it wasn't an accident. So the girls aren't totally surprised when they're arrested. They're also weirdly calm with the fact that they're facing murder charges and possible life in prison. I guess they figure no matter what happens, at least they'll have each other. And I mean, after Juliet admits guilt, they are literally in the same cell together. Apparently, the police aren't worried that the pair are going to conspire to get their story straight since they both have already confessed. So in a way, the girls have totally pulled it off. Even if they have to spend the rest of their lives in this cell, they're finally together, and that's all they've ever wanted. Coming up, Juliet and Pauline stand trial. Now back to the story. It's late June 1954, and Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume have both been charged with murder. Once the local papers get wind of the case, it becomes a national media event, almost overnight. The brutality of the crime just floors the people of New Zealand. Like I mentioned before, matricide is already a really rare, really shocking crime all on its own. On top of that, the accused aren't hardened criminals, but teenage girls. By June 24th, two days after Nora's death, the story is splattered across front pages from Sydney to London. The next week, when Juliet and Pauline arrive at the courthouse for their arraignment, they're greeted by a crowd of about 300 spectators. And once trial begins in August, the press coverage reaches a fever pitch. A continent away in the UK, almost every major paper runs front page updates on the hearings every single day of the week-long trial. And of course, they make a huge deal out of Juliet and Pauline's alleged relationship, which, again, their sexuality is seen as a mental illness at the time, so most of the coverage treats it as evidence the girls have psychological problems. Throughout the trial itself, both the prosecution and the defense go out of their way to make Juliet and Pauline seem downright evil. I mean, both sides paint them as immoral, troubled, and unhealthily obsessed with one another. As weird as it sounds, the defense is trying to argue that the girls are innocent by virtue of something called communicated insanity, which basically means that Juliet and Pauline's obsessive relationship has driven them criminally insane, so they can't be held responsible for their actions. 
Juliet and Pauline's lawyers basically dredge up every salacious detail about their relationship and use it as evidence that they're too delusional and morally depraved to know right from wrong. Meanwhile, the prosecution points to that exact same evidence to argue that Pauline and Juliet are monsters and should be held accountable. During the closing statement, the prosecution says, quote, They are not incurably insane. My submission is they are incurably bad. End quote. Since nobody disputes whether Juliet and Pauline actually committed the murder, it all comes down to two questions. Whether the girls understood what they were doing and whether they realized their actions were immoral and illegal. Evidently, the jurors think the answers are pretty clear-cut. After a little more than two hours of deliberation, they find Juliet and Pauline guilty. Ordinarily, the girls would face the death penalty, but since they're minors, the courts settle on a sentence of, quote, Her Majesty's Pleasure. Apparently, Her Majesty's Pleasure is this holdover from New Zealand's days as an English colony. It basically means that instead of having a set sentence, Pauline and Juliet will be incarcerated until officials decide they've learned their lesson. I mean, that could mean a lifetime or a few decades or something even shorter than that. In fact, Pauline and Juliet spend less than five and a half years behind bars, although in separate prisons this time. Apparently, their behavior is so good during their time apart, the parole board decides there's practically no chance that either one would commit a crime again on their own. As long as they're separated, they'll be upstanding citizens. So in November 1959, when they're both 21 years old, Juliet and Pauline are released. And with a clean slate, the two women set out on separate but eerily similar paths. Juliet moves to Italy with her family and eventually relocates to Scotland. After six months of parole in New Zealand, Pauline attends college in Australia, and then, degree in hand, she also moves to Scotland. They settle down roughly four hours apart from one another, but as far as anyone knows, they never reconnect. Pauline changes her name to Hilary Nathan and becomes a devout Catholic. She tries to become a nun, but basically flunks out of training before she can take her vows. Instead, she works as a librarian and later in a bookshop. Juliet also changes her name to Anne Perry, which might sound familiar if you're a fan of crime novels. Yeah, Juliet literally capitalizes on her criminal past to become a successful author. And like Pauline, she also rediscovers religion. Only in her case, she becomes a Mormon. So even though Pauline and Juliet are living separate lives with new names, both find careers in the literary world. Both are still spiritual, even if they're not worshiping their celebrity saints. And they might still be carrying a torch for one another after all these years because neither Juliet nor Pauline ever gets married. Which makes you wonder why they never reunite. Maybe they realized how obsessive their relationship was. Maybe they wanted to move on and forget that whole tragic period of their lives. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another story. 
And if you want to hear more, you can find all episodes of International Infamy for free on Spotify. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from Parcast starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of International Infamy was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Chelsea Wood. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out Crime Junkie and all AudioChuck originals. Chuck originals.